And so it's very easy to just plunk a countdown timer on your store, but it takes development effort, research effort, it takes time and attention to like listen to your customers and do the right thing. And I select my clients by people who are willing to do the latter and are less likely to juice numbers by doing the former. Welcome to Latitude, the show for freelancers, founders, and creators about all of the non-business parts of running a successful business. I interview folks who are defining work for themselves. We look at the mindset and methods it takes to create the latitude you need to do your most creative work. This week, I'm talking with Nick DeSabado. Nick has been practicing design for over a decade and has written multiple books on design and entrepreneurship. His design consultancy draft has consistently made six figures in revenue, but more importantly, he's created it in a way that's enjoyable, sustainable, and aligned with his values. Today, we'll talk a little bit about the connection between business metrics and design, and how you can start implementing value-based design, even if you're not a designer. Then we dive into the impact of in-person and online community, and our responsibilities in creating ethical technology that treats people the same way online as when we're interacting in person. Awesome. Well, really excited to have you on the show, Nick. Um, definitely looking forward to talking with you about value-based design, probably a little bit about e-commerce and um, some of your background as well. So to kick it off, um, I don't necessarily want to dive too deep into the background. I think it'll kind of come up a little bit, but why should folks take design advice from you? Well, I have 13 years of experience in the industry, and I've written six books on various professional topics, either co-authored or authored myself. I've written over 150,000 words on design. I wrote My first book was uh, called Cadence and Slang. It's considered one of the bestsellers of UX design and interaction design in the whole industry. It sold over 4,000 copies. It was the 19th ever project on Kickstarter. I've spoken at South by Southwest, Web 2.0, a bunch of other conferences that you've probably heard of, many that you haven't. Um, and I've run my own consultancy called Draft for the past seven years. So I have a pedigree. Um, people seem to take me seriously. So if you haven't heard of me, hi, I'm new here, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. And I will say that Cadence and Sling is probably like one of just a handful of books that I constantly reference, um, like I read it cover to cover when I first got it, but like, I still end up coming back to a lot of that stuff. Amazing. Thank you. And so I guess today though, we're here to talk about value-based design, which is, um, your most recent book, but also more generally kind of a concept. Um, so just to kick it off, I just want to get your sense of design in general, and then we can kind of dive more into value-based design specifically. Yeah, I, I have a very broad definition of design, which frustrates some people and other people like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Because design, if you just look at the word design, it can mean everything from like architecture to fashion to technology, right? So in technology, design for a long time was considered just the graphic side of it. And then people brought in UX design. And so then it's the layout, behavior, how it works side of it. I come from an interaction design background. So I think a lot about the overall layout and behavior of the interface. That's what I'm personally best at. But working in teams as I have for the past decade plus, I've seen people making design decisions in teams that are not necessarily UX design decisions. They can be graphic design decisions. They can be product design decisions. They can be um, 
developers making design decisions around um, performance trade-offs, around overall error states, around messaging. And so I take a very broad view of design within technology as something that affects your experience in the product. And that is a very holistic portrait and very broadly viewed by design, pun intended. Um, it's something that if you, you know, make a trade-off that slows down your application somehow, that's a design decision. If you change the copy on your website, that's a design decision. And it's something that um, is conscious and deliberate and intentional and affects customer or viewer or user, whomever, the subjective impression of the product. Okay. And so then it sounds like pretty much anyone who works in technology would be a designer then in some sense, whether that's kind of their title or not. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen this weird power struggle around design decisions over the past 20 years. Like graphic design has always had, you know, a little bit of like seniority around the term design. But beyond that, you think about UX design, then product design. You think about service design with a lot of technologies. um, And you think about things that don't actually have the word design in them, but end up affecting the final design, like information architecture. And um, and I don't know, it's all of a piece. You should all be working together and singing from the same sheet and trying to get the right thing done. And if you're from the design team, it's on you to try and like work with other uh, other members of your team to make sure that it's followed through and shipped correctly and built out the way that you would expect it to be built out because there can always be expectational mismatches or communication breakdowns. So I'm very I'm very broad stroke about it. I think that when I'm talking about design with the book value-based design, I'm thinking more about traditional disciplines, people who actually have the word design in their title. But you asked me to design define design, so there you go. <laughs> well, that's great. And I mean, so then what do you think is the responsibility of folks that aren't designers in design? Um, Listen and collaborate with designers and understand that we're all trying to do the right thing and trying to ship something that makes sense, right? Like developers, let's say you're a developer and a designer is telling you, hey, we need to be doing this thing, this thing, and this thing. And then you believe that certain aspects of that might be technically difficult or infeasible. It's on you to not say no, but to take that as an opportunity to listen and begin a conversation because the designer is asking you to do this stuff because it comes from somewhere, right? And it's something that um, there's an impulse within that. There might be customer research. There might be, um, you know, the rest of the team agreed on this and there might be a middle ground. There's usually a middle ground. There's always half measures within what you're doing. What does a compromise look like? Um, So I think, you know, having that kind of process of listening and collaboration is tremendously important and valuable, no matter what your role happens to be. Mm -hmm. And so then you said kind of value-based design is more specific to designers. So why don't you give me kind of a little more in-depth into value-based design? Yeah, so um, value-based design, it's kind of what I call an expansion of a design practice to include three things you may or may not be doing. One of them you definitely should have been doing for a very long time, but I kind of bring your attention to it. And that first thing is research, which you should be listening to how your customers are behaving and talking to your customers to determine what motivates them to actually purchase, right? Um, The next is measurement. So you should be trying to assess the impact of your work and uh, figure out what happens when I change this year, what happens to a given metric? Is that conversion rate? Is that revenue? Is it 
um, customer lifetime value? Is it churn rate? Whatever it happens to be, you're thinking about it in a very like business centric way, right? And then the third is experimentation, where you kind of take that research process to come up with ideas that you are then testing, running experiments on to determine what their overall impact is. It's an application of the scientific method effectively to your design process. And there are a lot of designers that are doing things that would track as broadly speaking value-based in an organization. If you're a design researcher, congratulations, you are already doing one of the three pillars of value-based design. If you are um, running A-B tests and and you're managing a prioritization queue to figure out what gets tested first, what gets tested next, what new ideas get come up with, um, what... uh, what things end up happening in the the testing queue. Congratulations, you are handling the experimentation side of things extremely well. If you sit in Google Analytics all day and you consider yourself a data person, then you are doing measurement side of things well. I think that a well-rounded designer should have small components of all three of those things so that they can talk more fluently about the impact of their design decisions and take more responsibility for their work. Because too often designers just ship a thing and then it's on everybody else to bean count it. And that sort of relinquishes responsibility. I don't really enjoy letting go of my design in that way and just being like, well, like, what if it's a disaster? <laughs> it's still on my on me, but I don't get to control that conversation or try and fix it. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's no good. You know, I don't I don't want to let go of that part of the process. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's how I define value-based design. Um, it's a long definition. I have a much shorter and more succinct definition in the book, but. Well, and I mean, I think too, because there are a lot of folks here that maybe don't consider themselves designers, but just through the fact of like, they're running their own business or they're building their own products. Um, they still have to think about like that research measurement and experimentation, but like, that's a lot to think about when it's like just one person or just a small team. Where would you say is kind of like that first step? Well, read my book. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, it's, I think there's most designers start from at least a research background. So getting more fluency in research is probably really important. Right. Um, but where, designers don't really have a whole lot of fluency as in understanding how to measure the impact of their decisions and how to experiment with their decisions such that they can move the needle meaningfully. If you're on a small team and you're a designer, it's very strong impulse to just get more design books, right? I learned about typography. I learned about principles of composition, form, color, layout, behavior, UX, whatever it is. Um, And that's great. You can learn all of those fundamentals, but they won't really help you grow. So the best thing you can do is to read things that are outside of your field in places that would be normally like the purview of Google Analytics human beings or data people. Um, If you can go and check out GA resources at like Conversion Excel and take a course about it or go to Analytics. Um, it's like a woman's name, Annie, and then Lytix is, she's an amazing resource for it. Copy hackers is an amazing resource. Start learning about the measurement of the impact of technological decisions, because that's what you're doing. And once you start to understand that, I don't wish looking at GA on my enemies, it's a UX nightmare, but you have (laughs) to do it. And so I basically tell people in the book, like, Eat your vegetables and learn Google Analytics, please. And learn a little bit about how to like track events and understand metrics. 
If you are listening to this and you have a job, you are working for a business in some capacity. So it also behooves you to understand how business operates. And my favorite resource for this is a book called The Personal MBA. It sounds wildly dry and intimidating. It is could not be further from the truth. It is extremely readable, um, extremely friendly. I believe it is available online for free or at least excerpted online for free. If you go to thepersonalmba.com, it is very smartly written. And you should know what is motivating your bosses, right? You should know what is motivating people to try and and move the needle for their business because that's why they hired you fundamentally. You're there to try and create an impact regardless if it's a nonprofit or if it's a startup. Even now, startups are starting to focus more on revenue generation and less on blitz scaling or whatever you want to call it. Um, So if you're a designer and you don't understand why you got hired, learning the, the fundamental precepts behind the system that you exist in tremendously powerful and valuable. And I could not possibly give a strong enough recommendation to to try and do that. And so, I mean, a lot of this is just read things and take action on it. But I mean, you're in the tech industry. You should be reading things and taking action on it as a practice. You should have an education budget. You should always be growing and never stop learning about all of this stuff. Um, On the experimentation side of things, sign up for Google Optimize and play around. Like and read Draft's blog if you really want. If you go to draft.nu slash blog, we have a crap ton of free resources that you can take a look at that teach you how to start a new A-B test or um, you know, troubleshoot stuff in Google Optimize if you need. Um, and it's free and um, probably worth your time to be looking at Google Optimize and, and taking a look at other resources around it. Yeah, well, and I mean, I'll just say that the personal MBA for me too is another book that like, it's a great reference in almost any situation, any business challenge you're facing, there's kind of something relevant in there. But going back to like almost the first thing that you said on that topic is like, for me, for a long time, it was where at, uh, more as I was like kind of working full time, I was constantly trying to improve as a designer. And to me, that meant typography and color theory and layout and all of these things. Um, And it wasn't until kind of I was doing more of my own thing and doing client work and doing side projects and things like that, that I kind of started to realize that like, okay, I'm like a good enough designer. All like all of the all of these other things that I haven't been thinking about are like, that's where the actual like value is in businesses and then obviously in value-based design as well. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're wondering why you're like mediocre, basic design friend is getting promotions. It's because they learned at some point that it's about existing within like, you know, a business context and serving the business. And it doesn't have to be the prettiest design. It doesn't have to be the most distinctive style. But to your point, like there comes a point where you kind of, it gives me no pleasure to report you kind of get to diminishing returns of learning more and more about design, what's trendy or what's beautiful. And I kind of know it already. Like, I don't think I need to learn a whole lot more about the tenets of design. I think I understand it. So what then? How do you grow from there? How do you move? Even if you're not a like, quote, big D designer, knowing the basics is fine. But like, how many sites have you, like how many big, like, enterprise sites that you have seen that like look horrible visually, but like they're able to speak the language of their customers. Um, They're able to kind of like validate new products. They're able to do all of these other 
design things mm-hmm. to like be successful in design, even if it like isn't interesting visually. Yeah, like designers, like 22-year-old designers getting out of college and being like, I'm going to redesign the Bloomberg terminal so it's less ugly. They want it to be ugly, fam. That's not, that ain't it. Like, <laughs> this, it's, they're focusing on a specific segment and a specific task and it can be ugly, you know? And, and the more you understand about, oh, what? Rather than rage stroking against the ugliness of Craigslist or the Bloomberg terminal or whatever, ask yourself, what is the motivation behind this? What is moving the person to do this and have a Bloomberg terminal look as pug fugly as it is? Because it is that way. And, you know, they could change it. It's Bloomberg. They have enough resources to buy a design team and do it. (laughs) But they don't. Why don't they? What is the incentive? What is the motivation? The more you learn about that, the more you know how to move as a designer and how to work within whatever context you happen to be in. Now, before we jump into the next question... I want to pause for a minute and talk a bit about Podia. Podia is a platform for creating and hosting online courses, digital downloads, and memberships. More than that, though, Podia is a company that believes in and supports creators. They don't just build course software, they really enable people like us to do the work we love. I'm a longtime Podia user, along with a few of the guests on the show. My Podia course has directly led to thousands of email subscribers and five figures in revenue. As a designer, I definitely have a tendency of tweaking and perfecting everything, but most of the time that's not what actually makes a difference. Podia makes it easy to focus on creating content that's useful and valuable, rather than getting distracted by design edits or a long technical setup process. It doesn't matter if you're an expert developer or creating your first ever digital product. Podia makes it fast and easy to create something that not only looks good, but converts well. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably working on creating something. Whether that's an app, a course, or an entirely new business, creating something out of nothing is hard, but Podia makes creation a little bit easier. They're offering 15% off for life to listeners of the Latitude podcast. To get your discount or to just learn a bit more, go to podia.com latitude, or there's a link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the interview. And so then if you are kind of like earlier in the process, like I know a lot of what you talk about is kind of optimization and A-B testing and a lot of those things, how would kind of the value-based design approach fit in for like feature prioritization or even like validating something completely brand new? When you're validating something brand new, um, so I talk a lot about this in the companion book, Applied Value-Based Design, where um, I give you like all of the day-to-day things that you should be doing. Basically, if you're testing a feature, um, it might affect customer churn. So you roll it out to like maybe a quarter of your customers, you determine the churn rate over a few months, right? If you have the ability to, if it's like a load-bearing enough feature that it's like a massive impact or something like that, you make the change and then you measure the impact of the change. Um, if it's I'm changing something to like a marketing page, well, then you can like affect conversion rate, you can affect um, customer lifetime value, and you can set up annotations in GA that um, like uh, 
that actually measure what the impact happens to be. The challenge gets to be when you have many cascading changes, like if I launch a feature every week, right? Or if I launch like a bug fix in the middle, like was it the bug fix that fixed it or the feature? And you don't really know. Eventually the numbers go up. Why do they go up? What does that look like? Um, when we talk, the, the easiest is when it's like a massive redesign or something that like significant cha- significantly changes customer behavior. Um, when you're doing like a lot of different changes one after the other, the hope is that you're getting enough traffic to get statistically significant results by the time the next change hits. Um, and if you're not doing that, customer interviews, doing more research, checking with usability tests, validating that way, um, trying to get feedback, answering it with more research can kind of help you get over that hump without having to be staring at Google Analytics like somebody who would end up getting enough traffic. And I could go into a statistics lesson as to what constitutes minimum traffic volumes, but um, I don't want to put your audience to sleep. So, <laughs> No, that's fair. Read the implied um, book, yeah. <laughs> and so then is the approach different if like, so I would guess a lot of times if you're like further up in the funnel, um, you have more traffic, it's easier to get statistically significant things than if you are testing like retention or churn or some of those other things. Is the approach similar if it is like more on the marketing side or more on the product side? Yeah, you want to be, um, that's a great question. I'm going to give kind of a crunchy answer. So there's what's called um, primary or secondary metrics. And secondary metrics are things like click-through rate, bounce rate, um, things that are like observable, maybe from the very top of the funnel. So let's say you have a SaaS business and it goes like homepage, pricing page, sign up page, credit card form, and then you're on the dashboard. Obviously, you want as many people to hit the dashboard as humanly possible because by that point, they've given your billing info. And obviously, because it's a funnel, fewer and fewer people are going from the homepage, pricing page, sign up page, et cetera, right? So if you're making a change on the homepage, it's very tempting to be like, well, I got more people to hit the sign up page. But if that's a Pyrrhic victory and you end up getting like lower quality traffic into the sign into the pricing page and fewer proportion of them sign up, you didn't actually win anything, right? So you're paying too much attention to the secondary metric and not enough to the primary metric, which should be conversion, right? Primary metrics, as I write in the book, connect to some sort of business goal. And that is usually something that involves revenue or profit. Um, and that can be conversion rate, average revenue per user. If you're like an online store, it would go from like, home to category to product detail to cart to checkout to the thank you page. You want people to hit the thank you page. Doesn't matter the business. You're trying to get further and further along. So you can make design decisions that actually affect the interaction. And that won't actually help the business because you're not focusing on the hard thing, which is conversion and the thing that actually motivates the customer. I'm, I'm kind of zooming out and sort of unasking the question because what you need to do first is define a clear metric that you're going to be working on and figure out what things motivate people around that metric. And that's a hard question to be asking. Like, I can get a million people to click a button if I make it giant and red and blinking, but then they're just going to feel manipulated and sad and they click the blinking red button and... And for what, you know, you want it to be a conversation and you want to meet people halfway with what they're trying to be doing to like kind of answer, to get back to your question, define what the metrics are and, and then figure out what the relationship is between the secondary metrics and the primary metrics. Cause it could be that it's to cart or clicks actually help you, but you don't know until you're actually looking at the change in the funnel as you start making decisions. Okay. So then in that case, like 
if you had a landing page that's going to an email list, conversion is not necessarily signing up for the email list. It's whatever that next step is that actually kind of impacts the bottom line. Yeah. So like I run, I I sell books and courses and stuff, obviously. And so, um, but I have a mailing list and I want more people to sign up for the mailing list. Obviously that'll be lovely. But within, when you sign up for the mailing list, usually you get slotted into like a free course or something, depending on where you sign up from and and who actually goes. Um, And that free course is meant to give you a lot of really valuable, helpful content, and then sort of like gently directs you towards the page for one of my books or courses. And hopefully you've got some value from my mailing list and it's useful and um, such that you would be intrigued and want to buy one of my books. That's like a very typical playbook that a lot of independent business owners run. The beginning of the funnel is not the goal of signing up for my mailing list. Once you've signed up for the mailing list, you got over one hump in the funnel. It's buying the book because honestly, mailing list subscribers cost me money and selling books makes me money. And I have a dog to feed and a house and so on. (laughs) And I have (laughs) nothing else in my life but this business. So so I want people to buy the books and sign up for my consulting stuff. So from my own economic standpoint, like what allows me to eat every day. And so you mentioned that like, obviously, if you're targeting those secondary metrics, like you can put a big, bright flashing button that everyone's going to see and everyone's going to click on. Um, so how do you kind of think about more generally around like gray hat conversion techniques for la- lack of a better word, like either like kind of like real or manufactured scarcity, like exit intent pop-ups, like some of those sorts of things? As in all things in design, it depends. Most of the gray hat stuff, if you're if you're darkening your hat, check yourself. Like that's <laughs> I I try and do white hat stuff because I don't like lying to people in my life, and I don't like lying to people as a UX designer. I found it's not a good look. I know about as much as a human can know about the ways in which to manipulate people psychologically. <laughs> using technology. And I don't feel comfortable doing scarcity plays or giant exit intents or live chat pop-ups or intrusive text or giant weight banners or whatever. I personally get a lot more, like I've employed countdown timers in my life for like introductory sales. I've um, sent people last minute emails before I increase prices Um, But those are not lies, right? I'm not a fan of lying and I'm not a fan of playing to people's weaknesses. I want maybe to cause a sense of urgency around like the end of sale. But beyond that, like it's it's almost like that one XKCD strip where um, somebody starts trolling another person on the internet and writing a bunch of angry comments into a box and an angel picks them up and carries them over and plunks them in front of the person that they're writing comments to. And then wait to be picks the person back up and carries them back and plunks them in front of their computer. Think about that every time you do a dumb scarcity play in your optimization program. Is this something, if you ran a physical store and a real human being with a face walked in and had their own dreams and aspirations, would you treat them in the same way? Would you scream, wait, and chase them out of the store? Would you close a gate would you say secretly there's only two products left and then there's a warehouse behind you right like i don't think you would actually do that i don't think that's ethical and so if if you wouldn't do it in real life and you wouldn't do it to somebody that you know 
don't do it on the internet. With the internet is bad enough, people. <laughs> it's not making any worse. <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I think it's like a lot of things that people do just because it is like the thing to do on the internet. But like when you put it in that context, it like it sounds crazy. Like you would never do that to a human being, but like you are doing that to a human being. Have you ever seen a countdown timer in a physical store before? <laughs> Maybe it like, exists, but I don't think I ever have. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just it's crazy. So I think a lot about like, I mean, writ large, there's kind of an ethical obligation now more than ever, I feel has always been an ethical obligation in science because you can manipulate people, you can deceive people, you can take their money in ways that are underhanded. And it's incumbent on you. You have that power. But relinquishing that power and letting go of it is it actually puts you in a position of greater integrity mm-hmm. and and that's what i found in my own life if you're a jerk and you just want to you know be a sociopath by all means but i don't think you are i think you're cool and maybe if you're not cool you can turn off this podcast well yeah there you go i was curious like in like through some of my own stuff i've seen this on a smaller scale but i think you've worked with a lot like larger clients and like for a longer amount of time have you seen like when you are like avoiding some of those techniques that it does in the long term like your overall like customer value is going up because they're more likely to kind of repurchase and things like that have you seen that like avoiding some of that more gray hat stuff does positively impact the bottom line? Um, I think that, you know, it's a question of ROI. And so it's very easy to just plunk a countdown timer on your store, but it takes development effort, research effort. It takes time and attention to like listen to your customers and do the right thing. And I select my clients by people who are willing to do the latter and are less likely to juice numbers by doing the former. What I find from a metric standpoint is if you plunk a countdown timer on, it may increase conversion rate and harm customer lifetime value. And it's because your reputation goes down and people don't recommend you. Um, You might continue relying on ad spend to a degree that might be uncomfortable for the business. Um, And so it's, it's almost like a sugar high, like you juice a short term gain. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually help you in the long run. I work with businesses that are not there to sell in six months. I want durable, long-term plays to try and understand customers in a deep sense. And you can't do that with a countdown timer. You can't do that by aping the people that are like cool in e-commerce and just saying like, this is what works this week. That's not the kind of impulse or, or energy I really want to be following in my life. Um, and so I've, I've made my own like conscious decision to say no to those sorts of clients, to try and identify them ahead of time. I'm not perfect at it. I don't think anybody is, but you, you know, learn from any mistakes. You keep saying no, you keep finding ways to qualify people out and, um, make a bigger name for yourself and you're able to be more selective and choosy. So, yeah, that makes sense. And so then kind of going back to value-based design, how does that, align with some of these like almost ethical responsibilities that you put like on yourself and on your business? I think everyone in the tech industry has an ethical responsibility, period. I don't, I think that, you know, regardless of whether you are trying to make the numbers go up or not. In fact, I think you will have a greater ethical responsibility when you are so deeply connected to the like capitalistic machinations of a business. 
And that's effectively what value-based design is trying to do. It's trying to connect you to business value in a way that makes you more of a high-level thinker about what drives customer behavior. And that is a scary amount of power. Um, I don't know what else I can possibly say about it other (laughs) than, I mean, there are a lot of good books about ethical obligations in the tech industry. My favorite is called Future Ethics by Kenneth Bowles. Um, it's tremendously well-written and insightful. Um, but you know, you can, if you refuse gigs that you believe to not be part of your moral center, refuse the money, it's not worth it. You see what it does in the industry. You see what it does in world governments and in the economy, like it's not okay. And the more people that take that Faustian bargain, the worse off the world is going to be. Well, and I mean, like I agree a hundred percent for sure. Um, but I think it can be like hard sometimes, like if, like if Basil needed food next week and you didn't have a project, um, what do you kind of see as like, how does that responsibility change if you are like less established or earlier in your career or like have some of those money limitations? Yeah. I mean, there's... That That is always a question. Like, it's sort of like when you start out in the ad industry, and what's your first gig in the ad industry? They put you on tobacco, right? They put you on the oil companies. They put you on greenwashing. And it's like such a cliche thing that happens at this point that like, I don't, you can keep saying no and keep trying to break into the industry. You can start off in an agency and, you know, raise your voice I think that designers, broadly speaking, if you're an independent designer, I don't think you should be independent coming out of college. So just answer that. Like, you should probably have a W-2 gig coming out of college. It helped me. It helped me understand what the industry was. It gave me a safety net and a parachute. And I don't think all agencies are evil. So that's one answer. If you start out freelance and you find yourself having to take these horrible clients, you probably need more experience in a full-time job understanding things, building up a client portfolio and building relationships and writing and expressing yourself and trying to find the right kinds of connections that you need. Um, If your dog needs food next week and you don't have a way of paying the bills, then there are probably deeper structural issues in your independent practice than I can possibly solve on this call. (laughs) Um, If you don't have a job and you just got out of college Finding places that fit your own moral compass is probably the best thing that you can do. And in the absence of that, working anonymously in a giant enterprise for a little while is not the most ethically great thing in the world, but at least probably it's not Facebook. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, find a place where you can just kind of like sit back and learn and have a reasonably safe environment, even if it's boring, even if it's unsexy, um, because you'll still learn a lot. That would be my recommendation. Move to a big city and find a giant enterprise place and just blend in for a few years and work on the side to do interesting stuff. The more you work on the side, the more you will improve your design shops. The more you write, the more you communicate, the more you speak on podcasts or start one of your own and get out of your house and meet other designers, the more likely it is you will find what kind of problems you want to be solving. This isn't something... Like your dog is going to continue eating during this process because you will hopefully have a full-time job. 
But, you know, for me, I'm so far along. I've been independent for seven years. I've been in an industry for 13. So I know that it's easy for me to be very privileged and say all of these things. But if you're just coming out of college, you should be working to find a job, even if it's not ideal for you. Well, and I mean, I'm like a handful of years behind you, but my journey has also been really similar in that I spent some time in-house at a couple different companies and like learned so, so much and like more than I ever would have trying to kind of like go out on my own at that stage, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And so then I kind of want to transition a bit and talk a little about like you've mentioned the value of kind of communication and writing. And I know that like community is also a big part of sort of your design practice. And so I'm curious how you look at kind of the role of community in business in general. Yeah, there are a lot of things that I'm... Community is like the overlap between my personal and my professional lives, I feel, because there's a lot of stuff that I do that's just kind of like people hanging out. And there are just things that I do that are like, you know, it's my like close personal friends or something like that. And I view that as community. Like, I don't think that the 30 person group Slack that I'm on with a bunch of people who are like constantly shit posting or whatever, <laughs> that's probably not in scope for this. But the like Shopify consultant Slack that I co-admin probably is in scope for this. So um, in terms of that, like, I think that there's an opportunity to find other people who are trying to solve the same problems that you are uh, trying to solve, or they are maybe just starting out as designers independently, or they're just starting out in consulting practice or something like that. Um, For me, when I'm trying to find a community of other professionals, I'm always trying to seek out people who are a little bit below me and a little bit above me. If I try and get somebody who's way above me, they're not, they're going to talk to me like I'm a space alien, right? Like, and I'm not going to understand how they're speaking. But if I'm talking to somebody who's like one or two levels above me that I can kind of ride the coattails of, it's still legible in a way that makes sense. So there's that. Then there's the kind of like events management stuff that I do where like I have a monthly drink up for other designers in Chicago and I've been running it with my friend Becky for almost five years now. Um, There's the, uh, oh gosh, what else? I've cooked lunch every other Thursday for anybody who wants to show up without fail for the past five and a half years. Um, (laughs) So you can come over and because it's Thursday at lunch, it's mostly clients, people with fake internet jobs or people who just got fired. And mm-hmm. so we usually have something to talk about that's professional yeah, totally. related. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for that. But I, you know, getting out of the house is the biggest one. Being proactive about knowing what events are in your town. If there are not enough events in your town, make them. And the best resources that I found for this, um, if you read the book Get Together, it's by um, Kyle Mercado and two other people that I forget the names of. It was just published on Stripe Press. And it's basically like, how, how does community form around a special interest? And so if you're talking a special interest that could be design, that's pretty broad. How about content strategy? Okay, now you're a little bit warmer. How about content strategy for nonprofits? Now you're cooking with gas, right? (laughs) Finding something specific rather than just design allows you to kind of find your kindred spirits. This is the way with positioning in business. It's the way with finding something specific with with the things that you're actually doing in your community. Um, So the more 
And the more time and effort you put into promoting, knowing that, you know, sometimes there's going to be two feet of snow on the ground and people are never going to show up and making it a practice. That's something that I care about a great deal. And um, if you're not trying, you're never going to be able to create those relationships and, and find the people that you want to be finding. I found that, you know, while I don't normally find clients at the monthly drink up that I run, like I've deepened a lot of relationships with people in my industry and it's been very, um, it's been very professionally fulfilling. It's been almost very spiritually fulfilling. It's been very like personally, just like, I feel like I'm living a richer life by doing this. And I think that by living a richer life, I'm able to, you know, a serve my clients better, but also just, you know, be a better listener, be a better communicator, um, be a better person in a lot of ways. Being a better organizer may, helps me be a better person. Um, and I think that's tremendously important. And I mean, I think that's like so fundamental to kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is like that stuff is also connected. Like even if it doesn't lead to a client, like the experiences that you have in that environment impact the experiences that you have at work impact the experiences that you have in your own personal life. Yeah. It's all, it's all of a piece, right? I don't think that everybody keeps talking about work-life balance and I definitely, definitely create boundaries around this. Like after this phone call, I'm walking my dog with a feature phone and not looking at the internet. Right. So it's important to have that, but I also make very little distinction between like clients can show up to my fire pits if they know about them, you know, <laughs> like it's cool. You might be in a weird space that you didn't necessarily expect, but it's there, you know, there's whiskey. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that I'm, I don't know if it's just the Aquarian in me or what, but like, I don't make a distinction between people very much. I don't, you know, if you're fancy, great. Congratulations. You're fancy, but you're, you're on an even plane with everybody, um, when you're in my space. And, and I found that to be, I don't know, more like generous and welcoming. And, um, and a lot of people, like people that come into my, my house and they like make $10 million a year in their fancy pants business or whatever. And they're like, wow, I got treated like a person for like the first time in five years. I'm like, congratulations, mm -hmm. you know? Well, yeah. And I, it like, it makes your personal life more authentic and it makes your business life more authentic. Like, yeah, you're kind of able to be like whoever you are in those environments because they don't have that clear separation. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't, they don't know how, to, no one knows how to create that. So I'm not going to like drag any one person, but I think that the more fancy and important you get in the industry, the more like far away you get from your personal life or the ability to create boundaries between your personal and your professional life, or you've created such hard and fast boundaries that you don't know how to let people into your personal life in any way. And it just kind of gets frozen in amber over here. I don't know if the freezing and amber bit is necessarily sustainable. It's not for me. And, and so then do you think that like quote community is like the primary way that you've found to do that? Or do you think there's kind of like other avenues? Um, to like have a richer personal life you're saying? Yeah. Or like more aligned or more, yeah, whatever the word is. Yeah. I mean, I think that I default to being a good entertainer and a good organizer of events. And so in as much as those create community, I feel like community is simultaneously everything and nothing is a term for me because community <laughs> can be 
me going out on a one-on-one with a friend. Like I went out with somebody last night and we just dished, right? And it was cool. Like it was whatever, but like, that's not necessarily community, but this friend was a community member and we were discussing things about the community. Yeah. And so is, am I doing community there? Am I doing community by throwing the fire pit? Am I doing community by... So like defining that is very slippery and difficult, but I think that social relationships, humans are social animals and being intentional and structured and outgoing and, and I, I put a great deal of effort into the practice of social relationships, be that with my close friends or with randos who show up for draft lunch or people who come over for like my biggest parties of the year or whatever. There are spaces for all of those different things. And I think it's sort of, um, it's my way of seeing others. It's my way of relating to the world and, and in some ways relating to myself because they reflect back what, um, what I end up valuing. And I get a greater sense of how, how to interact personally and professionally. And nothing happens in a vacuum. You bring your whole self to work every day. So in as much as that helps my professional life, I think it helps me be definitely a better interviewer of customers. I'm a better researcher because of everything that I do. I am so good at asking questions because of all of this. I am also very good at knowing when to exercise my power and when not to. And how to be deliberate and intentional about that, which I think very few people are, definitely very few men are. And so then I think you've kind of like hinted at this a little already, but do you, I guess from more of a business perspective, do you see a big difference between in-person community and like online community? Um, So I live in Chicago, which um, you would think has a big community and it does have a big community, but it also has a big community that is constantly in flux. People leave, people hate the winter. Um, people get hired by places in New York and San Francisco all the time. And so, um, and I've grown up here, like I've spent all but two of my, all but two years of my life in a seven mile radius of where I'm currently sitting. And so I believe very much in Chicago's ability to foster and catalyze community and to, um, and to bring people together And regardless of whether you're just here for two years before you get poached by someplace in New York, I think there's some value to that. And people don't forget it. They don't, they don't forget the like overall vibe that we're capable of creating in this particular space. And, um, and so I think that, yes, being in person in front of someone, there's no, there's sort of like, when you're texting with somebody, you exchange a little bit of information. When you're on a phone call with somebody, you're texting, you're exchanging a little bit more information because you can hear intonations of the person's voice. When I'm on a call with you, as I'm currently on a video call with you, you can see me gesticulating, you can see my face a little bit, but it's not high resolution because computers. Um, and then the top is IRL one-on-one, right? Like if you sit down at a bar with me one-on-one and we have two drinks together, that is the maximum amount for the amount of time that we're together of like ideas and and energy that can be exchanged between two people. And there's no substitute from in real life. It's why it costs so much to live in San Francisco in 2019. It's because you have a community of tech people. And it's because all of that human capital is con- like concentrated in this one region. It's why so many people move to New York and LA. It's because human capital is in those regions. Smart people understand this. And I think it's no exception in Chicago where um, not only 
is, you know, in a gigantic city where there's a lot of incredibly smart and talented people, but there are a lot of people who are extremely lifetime committed to Chicago. And there are a lot of people who really hate the winter and need to go outside <laughs> at the same time. I, you you have not been a Chicagoan until you've gone outside in, in minus 30 or below weather, gone to a bar and seen the reaction of everybody when you go inside. Like, you made it. We don't know who you are, but thank God you're here. And that is... That is exactly what I want in my life. Like, mm-hmm. like that's sort of just like all of a sudden I made 30 friends because I made it into this bar and you'll get frostbite in seven minutes with exposed skin outside. And um, and that sort of thing, like there's no substitute from IRL conversations. And it makes me very of this city in particular. So I'm talking about Chicago, but it could be anywhere, Right. Whatever the strengths of your city are and whatever your community is, the longer you've been there, the more on the ground you are, the more you understand how to move in that that space. And I know probably better than most people how to be a Chicagoan good. Yeah, well, and I mean, I like for me too, like I lived in the Bay Area for a little while and was like this was not even stuff that I was thinking about, but like I was still exposed to that just because of that environment. Um and now I'm living on an island off the coast of Maine, where in like in some respects is very similar to Chicago in the sense that like the pizza place down the street closed last week for the season and they're going down to Florida. But like there are bars and stuff that stay open here, but it's like so different when <laughs> it's like snowy and windy and stormy. Um, but you do, you like kind of find those people. And I think like, I've I've honestly found it a little challenging here just because it is a small town and it is like pretty empty in the winter, but like it still exists. And like you, like that was going to be one of my questions, but you almost answered it in the sense that like you make that community. Like that's the solution to not having community is like you just make it. Yeah. No, you, you listening to this, you have the power within to do that. I believe it. It's not even, if you can learn to be a designer, you can learn human behavior and what motivates people to show up. Read that book I mentioned. Um, go to runyourown.social if you want to know how to run a really good group Slack or a Mastodon instance or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, Darius Kazimi wrote like a 30,000 word blog post about this. Um, but it's, you know, it, community like design, like your career is a practice. You're never going to be done. And it's probably never going to be somewhere approaching good, but you can do it and you can show up for it. And you're going to, you're going to take steps back on it. You're going to take steps forward on it. Sometimes people are going to leave. Sometimes people are going to betray you. If it's Chicago, they're definitely going to betray you. And, and you're going to learn something about what matters to you at every step of that process. It's going to be painful and dumb, but you'll figure it out. I believe that. I believe that for everybody. Same. And so I guess with that said, it sounds like the best place to kind of learn more about you and what you're doing is to sh- show up on your doorstep in Chicago. People have done um, that. <laughs> but for, 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 folks, for folks that can't do that, um, where should they go to kind of check out what you're doing? Please don't come to my house without asking me first. <laughs> 
But if you want to learn more about my work and my business, uh, you can go to draft.nu. Um, that is my website. And it's uh, where you go to learn about my business. You can buy a copy of Value-Based Design there or a copy of Cadence and Slang um, and learn more about what kind of stuff that I do in my design practice. So, yeah. How do you define latitude in your life and your business? Latitude is probably you are asking a sort of a definition of freedom, right? Like the ability and agency to do many different things. And for me, I've always viewed draft as kind of a framework for following my intellectual curiosities and improving my design practice. That's kind of fundamentally what it is. And you can kind of tell what I'm thinking about a lot by what book comes out, right? Like I was obviously thinking a lot about design serving business for like two years and then value-based design came out and I sort of like birthed it into the world. And now like, I'm not talking a whole lot about cadence and slang related ideas anymore because I've moved on Mm -hmm. from it and I'm thinking more high level and strategic and meeting this moment and trying to, trying to respond to this moment. So I think that latitude, you know, I have a, I have a business, it's an S corp and it can be anything can be literally anything I want it to be. I can come out with whatever I want. Um, and to have that sort of freedom to be able to like leave if I want or come out with a new course on a new topic if I want or change my positioning if I want. Um, like I don't change my positioning every day, obviously, but just to know that I can and to know that I have that sort of agency and volition and power within myself. I think that's sort of what that means to me. And in my life, like, I don't know, you constrain yourself in certain ways, right? Like by getting a dog in a house and being married, I'm tying myself down in some capacity, but I kind of like it. I like being tied down in those ways. Um, And they're conscious choices to remove that sort of latitude. And, um, And I think that doing that over the course of your life and knowing how you're making those decisions and being conscious about it and knowing the places where you still have freedom to do basically whatever you want that's how I would define it for life too. Well, and I think too, like even in design and business and all of those sorts of things, like giving yourself those constraints in certain areas can almost give you more freedom or latitude in other areas. Yeah. You don't realize how much power you have um, until you start constraining yourself in certain ways and then looking around and seeing what other fields of opportunity might exist. And I'm being very high level about that. It could be business, life, anything. Um, designed. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Nick. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. So here's how Latitude works. It's the full interview you just finished listening to. Then next time I'll break down some of the topics and themes we just discussed. This short, focused, and extremely actionable episode goes even deeper into some of what we've covered today. Make sure to hit subscribe to get that and other upcoming interviews. This is also the part of the show where I'm supposed to ask you to rate and review the podcast. Instead, I want to make you a little more actionable about applying some of the things we've talked about today. So send a tweet, message, email, or carrier pigeon to a friend about the one thing you learned and how you'll apply it to your business this week. Or send it to me on Twitter at Zabzen. Links and more are in the show notes at createlatitude.com slash podcast. And I just want to remind you that you already have the tools you need to create a little more latitude in your day, your business, and your life.